0: Welcome to CNAS Live, a podcast that brings you recordings of public events from the Center for a New American Security. What you're hearing today is a previously recorded conversation, but we invite you to visit cnas.org slash events to learn more about upcoming discussions and ways to connect with us. Well, thank you all for joining us today for this virtual event sponsored by the Center for a New American Security the International Republican Institute, and the Ronald Reagan Institute. It's our hope that by bringing together speakers and participants from these three unique organizations and our audiences, uh, we'll be able to facilitate a really dynamic and diverse conversation about a speech delivered uh, in what in many ways seemed like a very different world, but one that we think offers uh, some real insight to the challenges that we face today, both here at home and, and around the world. My name is Rachel Hoff. I'm the policy director at the Ronald Reagan Institute, which is the Washington DC office of the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation uh, and Institute based in Simi Valley, California. Let me first welcome our speakers, Richard Fontaine of CNAS and Dan Twining of IRI. Richard and Dan both wrote papers for the Reagan Institute's essay on presidential principles and beliefs expounding on the Westminster address and its relevance to today's world, Uh, So let me say that beyond their many professional accomplishments and accolades, which I will not review in detail today, um, I think they're they're qualified to lead today's discussion uh, based on those merits alone. So thank you both for for joining us. And thank you as well to everyone participating virtually today. We hope that you'll join the conversation by submitting questions uh, via the Q&A box below, which we'll bring into the latter half of our discussion today. And as you do so, please remember to include your name and affiliation along with your question. One final note of administrivia, Cole Stevens from CNAS is our admin for today. So please direct any of your technical questions or administrative concerns and all of your complaints to him through also the Q&A box below, or you can email comms, C-O-M-M-S, at CNAS.org. Um, As a reminder, we are, of course, recording the session, and there will be a video of of the event available later today. So I'm going to begin by taking just a few minutes to do a bit of scene setting. It was 38 years ago today that President Reagan walked into the British Parliament at Westminster Palace. He was the first president ever to address both houses of Parliament, and he was going to deliver a foreign policy speech. But for those of you interested in events like this today, you know that it was no normal foreign policy speech. Uh, President Reagan used the opportunity as a call to action. He issued a bold challenge to begin a global campaign for democracy. At the time, doing so seemed somewhat unrealistic, um, radical maybe, foolish perhaps to some. In 1982, of course, the Iron Curtain divided the free and unfree world. Uh, The Soviet Union was expanding its empire, and the USSR actually held a military advantage over the U.S., both in terms of its nuclear arsenal and its conventional weapons. In in the democratic world, even, things were not so well. Um, The U.S. and the U.K., Alliance itself faced a bit of strain as the war raging in the Falklands uh, tested that special relationship. Um, But even in that context, President Reagan spoke in terms that saw past 1982, saw past the Cold War. He envisioned the fall of the Soviet empire into the ash heap of history and the spread of freedom around the world. He spoke of democracy in optimistic terms, using flowery language saying that democracy was a not at all fragile flower, but that still it needs cultivating. He asserted that if the rest of the century were to witness the gradual growth of freedom and democratic ideals, we must take action to assist the campaign for democracy. But what did that mean? What were those actions? President Reagan explained that we must foster the infrastructure of democracy, the system of a free press, unions, political parties, and universities which allow people to choose their own way, develop their own culture, reconcile their differences through peaceful means. So in hindsight, maybe the speech that seemed unrealistic and even radical at the time turned out to be prophetic. The rest of the century did indeed witness the growth of freedom and democratic ideals. In 1982, Freedom House counted 54 free countries among the nations of the world. And by the end of the century, that number had increased by more than 50% to 86. And that didn't just happen. Maybe the speech wasn't prophetic as much as it was a catalyst. The speech itself set in motion wheels of policy change back here in Washington, where the American Political Foundation was actually bringing together stakeholders from political parties, the business community, the labor community, and other institutions to really conduct a study on how the US should best contribute to that global campaign for democracy. At the time it was called the Democracy Program, And the study actually launched the institutions and architecture for fostering and supporting democracy that we know today as the National Endowment for Democracy and and its affiliated organizations, including IRI that's with us here today. It was gonna be a bipartisan, private, nonprofit effort to lead this work. And in what truly seems like ancient history these days, Congress soon, authorized and appropriated funding to make that project a reality. And it was that architecture that facilitated the democratic transitions in so many countries in the post-Cold War era, and it still survives to this day as America's main vehicle for spreading democracy abroad. But if that sounds like an unbridled success story for democratic transition, um, then we just need to fast forward a bit. In the last two decades, of course, democratic backsliding and the rise of illiberal democracies have complicated this story. This year, Freedom House found 14 consecutive years of decline in global freedom. And there are actually three fewer free countries today than there were in 2000, back down to 83. They've, Freedom House itself has declared that democracy is in retreat around the world. And as we look at those global assessments, I know there are questions that weigh heavy on all of our hearts uh, about the situation here at home as well. Are we living up to our own democratic ideals? And we'll discuss that in today's conversation to be sure. But let's start back in 1982, 38 years ago today, when President Reagan spoke those immortal words, we must be staunch in our conviction that freedom is not the sole prerogative of a lucky few, but the inalienable and universal right of all human beings. And let's use that as our jumping off point for today's conversation. Richard, I'll turn first to you. Why don't you get us started with some reflections on the speech and its relevance for today's world?
1: All right, well, thanks. It's great to be here um, with Rachel and with Dan and with all of you. Um, It's pretty remarkable to read the speech now, and if any of you haven't had the chance to do it, or if you haven't done it, in a few years, go back and take a look. It's a radical document in many ways. I mean, it, it, it is radical both for its times because as Rachel pointed out, um, it was almost the inverse of the conventional wisdom at the time. Uh, the economy was doing poorly. Um, the Reagan administration couldn't push point to the rollback of communism in a single country. And yet it's saying democracy is on the March, you know, these kinds of things, but it's also radical, uh, given the political discourse that we, we find ourselves in now, um, certainly abroad with the rise of illiberal democracies and with unapologetic autocracies, um, but also at home, um, the kind of divisions and the I think the lack of um, sense that we are living up to our democratic values here. and And, and in that sense, I think there's, I think there's four things that make the speech relevant in 2020, even though we're talking about something that took place 38 years ago. The first is this uh, this this clarion call for the United States to be active in the promotion of democracy and human rights. I mean, the the final uh, sentence of uh, of or one of the final sentences of Reagan's speech was what kind of people do we think we are? we're free people worthy of freedom and determined not only to remain so, but to help others gain their freedom as well. I don't know about you guys, but it's, it's almost inconceivable for me to see the president of the United States today saying that, uh, or seeing most of the candidates campaign on something like that, as opposed to something much more modest, much less expansive, much less, um, imbued with our values, um, uh, right now. Um, and so this clarion call, I think personally, is the kind of thing that we could use a lot of right now. The second, as we we're saying, is the speech came at this unusual moment. You know, The United States and the West weren't doing well. It wasn't just the United States, it was Britain and Canada and, and, and Japan and, and everywhere else. And, and if you look around today, you see pandemic, you see systemic racism that now has been so uh, amply highlighted, you know, protests, division in the country, and it's easy to look at that and say, look, we're so flawed uh, that one, we have no sort of standing to promote democracy and, and human rights abroad. Um, and, and you know, and this isn't the way of the future anyway, because of this democratic recession and things like that. And I think part of Reagan's speech was to point out um, that you know, we should be about perfecting ourselves and not only looking externally, um, but also not letting the the campaign to, to support democratic and human rights actors externally wait until we're perfect here, because we'll be waiting forever if that's, if that's the case. Um, so we should be perfecting ourselves and constantly moving forward domestically while we're actively trying to support things abroad. Um, the third is that, you know, again, it sounded maybe boilerplate back then and even a few years ago, but Reagan said that freedom was, quote, the inalienable and universal right of all human beings. That didn't seem controversial even a few years ago, but now you hear in the United States and in other places, you know, well, there are other models that may be equally legitimate. Uh, You know, some people are not ready for democracy. Uh, Some people uh, by virtue of their history, by their uh, socioeconomic development, by their religiosity, whatever it is, or um, more attuned to, you know, the Chinese model of democracy, as they like to call it, right? Um, that, uh, that you know, is autocracy, but they, they call it Chinese democracy. Um, Reagan believed in the superiority of the democratic ideal, that that was the legitimate form of government, form of government that rested on consent of the government as mer- measured through periodic elections. And and uh, and he called for a process, a direction, a basic code of decency, not an instant transformation, but move in the right direction. And I think that's another thing um, that that uh, we could use a little of today. And then the last point I would just make is, uh, you know, the, the, the speech is also, you know, back then, the, 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 the threat to democracy Uh, from abroad was from Marxist, Leninist, communist states like the Soviet Union. Now we have this challenge where we have have to defend our democracy against attacks from China and Russia and others that want to weaken us by dividing us, by making our democracy and our democratic practice less effective. Um, And then we also have this threat by uh, having too many imperfections in our own democracy of not being able to generate the national solutions that we need to big problems um and so you know like reagan i think it's time to aspire to the ideal the democratic values and the human rights and the notion that in the united states and elsewhere we're building a more perfect union we will never be perfect but we need to be moving ever closer toward the notion of a perfect union so that it is more perfect more of an example to the world and more uh democratic and uh and free for everybody who lives here so for those reasons i would Suggest people go back, and if you're looking for a little inspiration, you can find it there.
0: Well, thanks, Richard. Dan, let me let me turn it over to you for your initial reflections on the speech.
2: Thanks, Rachel. It's so great to be with you and the Reagan Institute and with Richard and CNAS. I'm big fans of you all. Uh, I would also like to announce uh, in this forum that Richard Fontaine has my vote. I hereby endorse him uh, because... You know, I think he just hit it out of the park with those comments. So I don't want to retread them. Uh, maybe I can just expand and extend them a little more. And and Rachel, that's really to start by taking on a couple of the points you laid out in your excellent introduction. Um, uh, one is that uh, despite democratic malaise in the West, and part of what Freedom House and other groups are identifying. Is uh, in many respects uh, instances where democracy is not working very well, right? That doesn't mean people don't want democracy. Actually, it turns out we work in nearly 100 countries at IRI all over the world. And actually, uh, where uh, people were not born with the extraordinary rights and freedoms and institutions and processes that we enjoy in the United States, frankly, they almost want them more, right? Uh, it is actually in Uh, Hong Kong and in Venezuela and in Sudan and Algeria, where people are fighting the most uh, in ways that are the riskiest for uh, the values that we're talking about today and that Ronald Reagan laid out. So I would just, I know we have a lot of ground to cover and we'll come back to a lot of this, but I would just like to say, I don't accept uh, the argument that somehow people are walking away from the democratic ideal. Uh, It is correct to say that, frankly, they are correctly disappointed with how democracy is performing and how democracy is under-delivering in many countries. So that's one comment. Uh, A second comment uh, is that uh, Reagan's optimism, you know, we need a little more of it today. Uh, He came out of a decade in America... Uh, that was one of the worst decades in modern American history, right? From uh, the riot, the protests of 1968 and the violence that accompanied them through uh, the ugly end of the Vietnam War and uh, the retreat that led to uh, the North Vietnamese takeover of South Vietnam to the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan uh, late in that decade to the oil price shocks Uh, that put America into one of its worst, perhaps its worst post-war recession. Um, The 70s were not a great decade, it turns out. Uh, Here comes Ronald Reagan early in the 1980s with this unbridled confidence in what we stand for and what we believe. And it goes to something Richard said, which is that these are ideals. Uh, We're never all going to meet them personally or as a country, but these are ideals to strive for and they are more powerful ideals uh, because they are universal. They're not actually American. They are universal. I would like to say something about what's happening in our country, uh, which is that uh, Americans' great support historically for democracy in the world is tied to our own struggles for justice and dignity and freedom at home. These are not separate things. It's not that we want uh, human rights and uh, uh, rule of law and democratic accountability and responsiveness for people overseas, uh, but somehow we want them less here. Of course, we want these values the most in the country that we live in. And that our own struggles, including the civil rights struggle, the extraordinary story of that that continues to unfold, that is part of what makes us American. And it's part of the democratic learning that we have gone through since our founding, our founding fathers laid out these ideals. They could not meet them. The early Republic could not meet them, but they were ideals. They were uh, values to strive for and aspire to. And I think every generation of Americans has done a little better in aspiring to those values and moving our country closer to them. We'll never quite get there. Uh, We're all human beings. Uh, But in fact, the struggles that Americans have gone through for their rights and freedoms, for equal protection and equal justice are part of what animate American support for a democratic world, a world in which uh, all people enjoy uh, the rights of free streets, the rights of uh, uh, free protest and assembly, right? Uh, the right to political accountability and responsiveness, that these are not separate matters. So um, as far as the point around uh, Chinese authoritarian propaganda, Russian authoritarian propaganda, which would like us to believe that because of our own country's shortcomings, we have no standing to, say, support the people of Hong Kong in their struggle. Um, The answer to that is, gosh, uh, Hong Kongers were waving American flags, right? They understand that America is an ideal. They themselves understand this difference between the ideal and what we are as a country. What we are as a country is great and hopefully getting better. Um, But uh, the struggle for what we want in our country is actually intimately tied to the struggle for what free people want all over the world and people who aspire to those democratic freedoms and that democratic accountability. And frankly, one thing that the authoritarians fear most is the full inclusion of all of their people in their politics. This is the scariest thing for them. In America, millions of people can take to the streets. And frankly, a lot of us welcome that as long as it's peaceful, uh, because our democracy has built, been built from the bottom up as much as from the top down. Uh, millions of people in the streets of Russia or China or Iran is their leader's worst nightmare. And one thing that makes America different, and I think a lot of democracies different, is that we see it as a source of strength.
0: Well, thank you very much. I think those are are really great insights to to get the conversation started today. Um, Let me start by asking a few questions of my own, just right off the bat. Again, uh, as a reminder to those watching, you can use the Q and A box below to submit your questions um, for the speakers today as well. So Richard and Dan, you know, you you touched you each touched on this in in sort of a different way in, in your remarks. But to to kind of take the question head on, start the conversation about about global freedom and democracy right right here at home, which is perhaps the best place to start. Um, you know, we've seen these massive demonstrations against racial injustice and, and inequality. Um, we've seen the response um, in some cases a violent response against peaceful protesters um, and it's raised really hard questions about, about whether or not we're, we're living up to our own ideals here at home. Um, So I suppose the, the fine point I would put on the question is, you know, does the United States still have the moral standing to do this work abroad?
2: I think we absolutely do. I had, uh, I've had people from all over the world uh, reach out to me in the past week and say, you know, we appreciate what's going on in America. We see how it ties to our own struggles in our countries, right? Um, We in the democracy community that works out in the world, we don't say America is superior, America is the best, you should import our model. Actually, we say, here's what we've learned in building our democracy. Here's what we've learned partnering with people in many other countries, activists, leaders, citizens, in helping them build greater democratic accountability and standards in their country. Um, Here's what we've learned and uh, we can help you, right? Democratic best practices, sharing, not just based on successes, but based on what hasn't worked or struggles that are ongoing. So, uh, you know, Again, uh, this comes down partly to narratives. Uh, the Chinese Communist Party would like everybody to think that every Hong Kong protester is a foreign agent, right? Um, they cannot swallow the fact that the people of Hong Kong actually want to live in a free society. I mean, that's true replicated around the world in many countries. Uh, there were many dictators and sort of budding Uh, dictators, who as soon as COVID struck, before uh, the uh, convulsions of the last week struck America, as soon as COVID struck, they said, oh yeah, political opposition is bad for our country's health. They began an immediate program of persecuting political opponents. They had those plans in the drawer. They were waiting for an opportunity to use them. So I do think we need to not fall subject to arguments from abroad, that somehow we do not have standing to do this work. We're not hearing that from people abroad who actually want help uh, and support and solidarity in building their democracies. Actually, we often hear that from leaders who are not accountable, who are not elected, who are not responsive uh, to their own citizens. And they would like to live in a world in which democracy is not seen as superior to other forms. They would like to live in a world where America is cut down a notch or two and not seen as a great beacon Right. So uh, we should not feed into that narrative and uh, we should reflect what is best about America, which is the fact that peaceful citizen engagement has made our country uh, a better democracy and a stronger country.
1: Yeah, I think just to add a couple thoughts here, that's the big elephant in the room right now, uh, which is how can a country that um, has such divisions doesn't show a great deal of competence in dealing with a major pandemic on the one hand, and turns out to be a country where, you know, an African-American man can't get a cup of coffee in Minnesota without getting killed by the police. Um, how can we preach to others about, um, what they should be doing? You know, the let's look at the moat in our own eye kind of thing before we go look at the, um, the one in someone else's. And I would say that, um, We should acknowledge that inconsistency, both between um, what we say publicly uh, to other countries and privately and what we do at home um, and in terms of our foreign policies, that hurts the cause. Um, It it hurts the cause because it generates skepticism, exactly the kind that we're addressing right now. So, I mean, John F. Kennedy pledged to bear any burden and pay any price in the defense of freedom while African-Americans couldn't vote in the South and were getting, you know, fire hoses and attack dogs unleashed on them. Um, you know, in terms of our foreign policy. I mean, uh, Jimmy Carter uh, elevated human rights to the top of his foreign policy, but praised the Shah of Iran as an island of stability. It turned out not to be much of an island of stability, but, you know, uh, Jimmy Carter, uh, you know, in the Bush administration, uh, people said, well, you have a freedom agenda at the same time you have Guantanamo and black sites. Tell me how that all nets out. Um, and of course, the uh, those things very often are inconsistent, and we should, I think, acknowledge that and use those as an additional spur to perfect ourselves at home. But that said, there's a couple of other points that I think are important. One is that relative, we 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 shouldn't um, we shouldn't f- uh, look at our own faults and think that those are comparable to the great autocracies, right? I mean. Um, we have significant flaws in in American democracy and lots of things that yet remain unsolved and need urgent action. Um, But we don't have a million Muslims in uh, Uyghur detention camps, right? Um, We don't have pervasive surveillance of everybody moving around. Uh, We do have elections. We do have a free press. We do have freedom of assembly. They have none of those things in the kind of countries that we're talking about. Um, And that is a meaningful... Distinction. Uh, America is a great flawed democracy. Emphasis on both those terms, and um, and then the other is is uh, just to uh, emphasize a point that I think Dan has now mentioned twice, but I I do think gets lost sometimes in. This notion that it's um, just an American messianic uh, impulse to convert countries in the world to be in the American image and likeness, you know, we, we want other countries to be like us, you often hear this, you know, we want to convert X, Y, or Z into a Jeffersonian democracy. I worked in government for 10 years and I never heard anybody say the object of diplomacy or anything with any country was to convert it into a Jeffersonian democracy, quite the alternative. It was a recognition that there are universal values that are embodied in documents like the Universal uh, Declaration of Human Rights in the constitutions of many of these countries that abridge them. North Korea, China, Russia. Everyone seems to acknowledge that these things exist, are attractive, are important to human beings and are, uh, are ideals to which their countries aspire. It's the execution against those that's the problem. So why would we not be in the position of supporting a more effective execution against the ideals that we all seem to believe obtain for everybody. Um, that even if we are uh, not perfect at home is something that I think we should be in, the, in uh, the process of working toward.
2: Rachel, could I just quickly tie that back to Reagan and Westminster? I mean, I know we're zipping back and forth here, but just to draw the line very clearly. You know, one thing he said in that very historic speech was that uh, the truest form of cultural condescension is to assume that other nations do not want freedom and liberty and dignity. Those are not his exact words, Um, but that actually uh, self-determination, the true plurality of uh, national greatness in the world can only flourish, can only flower, when people are free to make up their own minds politically about how they are governed and who governs them, that actually you hear a lot of um, uh, kind of democratic declinism in the West. And I think he was speaking not just to the Soviet listeners then, he was speaking to people in the West who were making a version of the argument Richard sketched out, which is that this is not America's role to support these values internationally. He was saying, actually, we are not going to cede to uh strong men the argument that what is best for their nation actually is to be determined by their publics that self determination uh national identity can only flourish uh under a democracy right in which all people have a voice and all people feel vested and it's really powerful and it's really true today people uh have not been uh in the streets of algeria or in the streets of bolivia or in the streets of Ethiopia and Armenia going back a year or so because they want something that's American. Actually, they want something that is theirs, that belongs to them, which is the freedom and dignity and accountability that comes from political responsiveness and political choice. Governments that listen to them, governments do not steal public funds that belong to its citizens. And so it's funny, I I do a lot of these conversations. This is a very good one. Americans always think it's about us. And it may be time for us to concede that actually it's not about us. These are things that people want irrespective of us. But we do have a voice and a vote in standing with them. And it is our duty to support free people, just like we were supported in our own aspirations for freedom from the British Empire.
0: That's great. And Dan, you should know you never have to ask permission to uh, quote Ronald Reagan or to bring the conversation back to uh, President Reagan. The answer will always be yes. Um, I'm actually going to pull in an audience question here because I think it sort of pulls in at a different aspect of this thread about um, What's going on at home and and I mean that sort of in the broadest sense with um, Kind of the the free world in in these efforts. Um, so the question comes from John Sullivan who Sisity's former uh former Cipe, C-I-P-E, so uh, part of that Ned umbrella himself in the past um, who points out that many commentators see populism and polarization as g- the greatest threats to democratic performance and stability. And what should we do about this and how do we rebuild a sense of democratic values and practices?
1: I'll take a stab at this. Um, I, I think actually uh, it starts by, and again, this ties in a little bit to the, the, the conversation thus far into acknowledging um, that what happens at home doesn't stay at home in a couple of different ways. One, um, you know, the, the American response to coronavirus, which I wouldn't necessarily put in uh, a democratic values thing, but I would put in a, a competence of democratic governance uh, basket. The response to that and then the, the, the Black Lives Matter movement and what's happened uh, on the streets and things like that, has been catnip for the autocratic governments around the world. So, you know, the, the Iranian uh, foreign ministry had held an English language briefing in which uh, the spokesman teared up um, by saying that, you know, they stood with um, African Americans who were being um, abused by the police in the United States. The, the protests were on the front page of North Korea's newspaper. The Chinese have, you know, made this about a contrast between their sort of tech-fueled, as they would put it, hyper-efficient uh, autocracy that can build a hospital in six days, and you know doesn't have these kind of protests because they crack down, and 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 you know what's a little freedom of speech here and there, or freedom to choose your governor, your your governance, if the alternative is sclerotic divided uh, democracies where only a share of the population actually enjoys its rights and the others do not and uh, is, is not competent in to respond to events or to marshal national solutions to the problems that divided and things like that we help their arguments when we don't do things well so we, we need to acknowledge that that should be yet another spur to try to deal with this the much harder question is you know how do you deal with this, and I think there it's it 's country specific and 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 everything else i mean there 's clearly um, the the rise across multiple countries of a, um, a a nationalist populist wave which on its own doesn 't have to be negative in any way it 's how this has manifested itself in electoral choices and the way governance happens. Um, you know, It's not a bad thing to be a patriotic American or a patriotic Brit or patriotic whatever else. Um, it's not a bad thing after the global financial crisis and all of the disappointments that have come along with a decent share of our populations about how globalism, globalization has affected them to say, hey, wait a minute, let's make sure we're not leaving out some of the people who are harmed by those things. Those are Those are good things, but when they're used to further divide populations for the political benefit of a faction, that's when you get into real trouble, and uh, it ha- it has this sort of, you know, negative cycle that just spins and spins and spins. And ultimately, um, I think you know, there's there's some institutional changes that you can make, and we can get into. We all work for John McCain, so we can talk campaign finance reform forever, and we can talk, you know, all those other kind of things. But it also comes back to the kind of behavior that the public is going to reward or penalize. I mean, politicians will gravitate toward those things that will get them elected and keep them in office and gravitate away from the opposite, right? So, um, you know, ultimately, it does come down to that, what the public, the voters actually value in these democratic countries. And that's no easy task to, you know, it goes in waves, um, as we've seen.
0: We have um, another question that came in from a viewer in Kosovo that that is kind of a uh, on a similar vein he notes that at looking at America from Kosovo he fails to see the relationship between President Trump and Speaker Pelosi as President Reagan had with Speaker O'Neill so keen political observation from Kosovo but it's clear that um, that our our American political disputes are are obvious to the world um so he wonders decades after president reagan's speech uh are we straying from our own path as the world's greatest democracy and what can activists do to put put the world back on track to follow reagan's path
2: so i'm afraid i probably don't have the silver bullet answer rachel um but i am struck by something uh Actually, Senator Tim Kaine once said to a group uh, that included me in the audience, he said, you know, politicians in a democracy respond to people, uh, respond to their constituents. And frankly, as a politician, and I'm consciously quoting a big D Democrat tick politician here, he said, we are responsive to our uh, constituencies. And often, you know, we, we have a lot of, we have partisan constituents. Um, He said, you know, one thing for all of us to do, if you are genuinely interested in bipartisanship and kind of cross-cutting solutions in this country or any other country, is every time you talk to a politician, write a politician, comment about a politician, um, uh, ask him what he or her, ask he or she what they have done with a member of the other party. Richard mentioned that uh, all three of us worked for Senator McCain. Uh, I came of age in my Uh, Very modest political life working for Senator McCain at a time when actually the only way we could legislate anything in the US Senate was to do it with a member of the other party that that actually was how the Senate worked and that was actually how you got legislation uh, uh, delivered to the president's desk was to do it together in in a bipartisan way. So uh, that's one thought, is to make sure that our leaders uh, feel like they have the right incentive structures uh, to reach across the aisle on matters of national importance. That's one. And frankly, that's true. I mean, that's as true in Kosovo as it is in the United States. I mean, I'm speaking partly here as somebody who works out in the world, not in America, in my day job. Uh, And uh, that is the kind of thing that citizens are hungry to see all over the world. Uh, One thing that has reinforced partisanship, not simply in the United States, but all over the world, as well as various forms of populist nationalism, is social media, right? Uh, Ronald Reagan and Tip O'Neill did not come of age in an era of uh, Twitter and uh, uh, just the astonishing velocity uh, and ferocity of social media, including its amplification of more extreme voices. So I do also think there's a tendency for us to look back on the good old days in American politics. Um, actually, uh, my friends who worked in uh, the Reagan administration and in other administrations in the past, the Carter administration, uh, the George Bush 41 administration, you know, they would often say, um, you know, they didn't feel like good old days to us, uh, We have a tendency to be nostalgic about the past in American politics. And uh, I think one thing for us to do is to be future-oriented. It is for us to help politicians navigate some of the partisan and populist currents. And frankly, uh, a lot of that comes down to having strong and effective institutions, right? We're very lucky we have those in the United States. That's what's helping us get through the current moment. Uh, many countries have much weaker institutions. I have on my bookshelf behind me the book, Why Nations Fail. Why nations fail in their democratic experiments is when their institutions are not stronger than individual leaders. And that's a lesson for us all as we think about where we want to invest.
1: Maybe I can just add a couple quick uh, thoughts here. Um, because, you know, for, I think, obvious reasons, we're spending most of the conversation talking about uh, how we improve ourselves at home and therefore have the standing, the efficacy to be able to do things abroad rather than spending most of the time talking about what's happening in all the countries where places like IRI are working, where we have a human rights agenda or democracy agenda and things like that. And that's entirely appropriate. And I think there's, you know, when the question is sort of how does, how do you get beyond the divisiveness and the polarization and, and, um, and, and, you know, any straying from the path of great democracy, I think there's obviously multiple answers to this, uh, depending on what level you're sort of looking at things. So, I mean, you could talk about ranked choice voting all day and and the, the, the potential for that to reduce, you know, polarization. I'm not an expert in that, and I can't tell you if that's a great idea, but I know a lot of people who do think that's a great idea. Yeah, there's a media education aspect to this. I mean, I remember when I was a kid and I would walk through the, um, go through the the grocery line with my mom, she, when the weekly world news would say, you know, um, you know, Tom Hanks is an alien that descended from Mars or something. She didn't believe it. And I, as a kid, didn't believe it, but you know, that was because everybody kind of knew how to evaluate source of information as opposed to, you know, the local paper over on the side that they would trust as the authority. And obviously that's been blown out of the water, but there's a whole nother generation, um, that, that, you know, we need to get, uh, clear on how to evaluate sources of information, which is one of the fundamental building blocks of how you deal with each other in a democracy. If you can't agree on the facts, you're not going to agree on your opinions. Um, And then, you know, to the degree to which we're talking about the issues of today, um, part of this is, is taking the opportunities when they rise. So the protests in the streets today are not a problem. The racism that gave rise to the protests in the streets is the problem. The protests in the street are an opportunity to deal with the underlying issues that have divided us in greater and lesser ways for centuries. It's a catalyst to be able to do something and, you know, I know people in the House are starting to work up legislation on policing and there's other ideas out there and things like that. But, you know, one answer to the question is take these opportunities when they arise. When you have protests in 400 different cities around the country in all 50 states, all clamoring for a greater degree of justice and sort of unity in society, take the opportunity, generate political will, and actually push that into something that's going to be focused on outcomes that can actually improve the situation, whether it's legislation or stuff at the state and local level and things like that.
0: Let me take a... A bit of a turn in the conversation and, and look again at sort of more US foreign policy. You know, we're in this new era of strategic competition, and and it's notable that our strategic competitor competitors happen to be authoritarian regimes that are that are making use of this full range of, of tools and tactics to advance their own impressive ends and 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 spread their narrative. Um, what do you think we can learn from Reagan's Westminster address? Uh, what what would he say about how to defend global democracy against those those efforts?
2: So, Rachel, I'm so glad you. I mean, you mentioned the term "defend democracy" because one thing that is happening uh, that frankly is a little different from what was happening in, say, the Reagan years, is that great power autocracies are uh, actually playing offense. Uh, they are not simply playing offense by virtue of military force of the kind the Russians have deployed in the Middle East or in Ukraine, or the Chinese have deployed in the South China Sea. They are playing offense with uh, what, if they were democracies, we would call soft power instruments, right? Uh, they are using misinformation. They are using disinformation. Uh, they are using all forms of social media hacks. Uh, to They are using various forms of broadcasting Um, to actually assault our democratic integrity and that of our allies i mean they are they are literally meddling in the elections of democracies uh, which is something that a lot of that rather unsophisticated soviet propaganda almost could not have dreamed of right so part of our agenda if we're going to have a serious conversation about great power competition and appropriate strategies with which to wage it Part of our agenda needs to be thinking about our soft power toolkit. Uh, It was this soft power toolkit that Ronald Reagan invoked in 1982 in these dark, dark days of the Cold War. I mean, I remember the early 80s. You know, people were actually afraid of a nuclear exchange, right? Kids were taught to hide under their desks at school in the event of nuclear fallout coming their way. Um, So it wasn't just um, theoretical. Um, But Reagan understood that actually, as he said in the speech, you know, the way we will win against the Soviet Union is not through bombs and guns. He said, this is a test of will and ideals. And we think our ideals are superior, that they are better because more people in the world want what free societies enjoy. And in a way, that's a secret weapon for the United States. Uh, to double down on those values as part of great power competition against autocratic forces. He talked about how uh, in, the, in the dividing line in Europe, literally where the Iron Curtain fell across the middle of Europe, NATO forces faced east toward the Soviet Empire. He mentioned in the speech that Soviet forces in East Germany and other countries also faced east because what they were worried was not that NATO would invade the Soviet Empire. They were worried that what would happen uh when the berlin wall came down would happen sooner which is that so many people would try to get out of the soviet union and sort of make a dash to freedom and that that is what would bring it down he invoked this in 1982 which is quite extraordinary right um so part of what we need to do uh, i mean i know richard will have smart and specific ideas but just to generalize is we need to understand that free societies are going to be better partners that protecting the democracies of our allies from foreign disinformation and subversion is actually going to be part of running a smart great power competition. And that frankly, as Americans, money we spend on investments in broadcasting objective news into countries or supporting democratic development uh, in many countries, that might be money better spent than money uh, buying aircraft carrier battle groups.
1: Um, yeah, I agree with What Dan has just laid out there. Um, I would say, you know, in his Westminster speech, President Reagan said that democracy may not be a fragile flower, but it needs cultivating. And I would amend that just slightly to say it needs protecting today. Um, When he gave that speech, the notion was, at least in the United States, uh, that our democratic practice was essentially up to us. Um, you know, the, the, the fear of of Marxist-Leninism or something, you know, th- th- this was in other countries, right? And of course, that was, that was appropriate. In a way, the Red Scare had been way behind. Um, but now, this is a worldwide phenomenon, and, um, and autocracies have learned uh, from the 2016 election and other things as well that the best and most cost-effective way uh, to weaken the United States is to divide it internally, which you can do through cyber means and through information operations, um, and that in the current political environment, it's like throwing matches on kindling, right? I mean, no one's going to say no to these, these kinds of things because it takes on a life of its own. And so, um, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, when it comes to the autocracies like uh, China and Russia and others, uh, Iran, North Korea, um, that would like to poke would like to increase the divisions of our society, spread disinformation, spread propaganda, hack people's systems, use all these things that kind of put us at each other's throats. We have such a large surface area to to defend in this country because we're a big open society and you can't lock everything down. So um, I think as much as there is on the defensive front in order to defend cyber systems and try to purge bots from social media and identify Russian trolls and all these other kinds of things, all important, but I think there has to be uh, offensive imposition of costs. I mean, if you're Vladimir Putin and you look at 2016 and you say, wow, it's 2020 and they're still at each other's throats over what happened in that election based on a relatively modest financial and at least somewhat plausibly deniable operation. I mean, this is like, you know, the the lesson is repeat unless the costs, the next time you tally the expected cost of benefits, the costs go much higher because the benefits seem pretty damn high. Uh, So I think we've got to impose costs and that we have to do this internationally. I mean, when, you know, when, The French election was hacked. It was a French issue for the French to deal with. When the Chinese get involved in the Australian political system, it's an Australian issue for the Australians to pass domestic legislation and protect themselves. The 2016 election was about the United States and Mueller and what are we going to do and all this other stuff. You know, but yet if a a Russian tank moved into the Baltics, it would be an alliance issue. If a Chinese frigate showed up on the coast of Australia, it would be an alliance issue. And, you know, what's likelier? Uh, so we know that these things are going to continue to happen, and they have to be dealt with together among allied, the democratic countries that have, you know, support and power behind them.
0: Yeah, that, that seems right. There's, there's something that's really clear in, in the Westminster speech where President Reagan, um, you know, it's not fundamentally defensive in nature. It's not just about pushing back against communism, but about spreading democracy and advancing human freedom and, and human dignity. Um so a lot of course has changed since 1982 the world's a very different place technology um chief among anything has has reshaped the the landscape so um Richard do you have any smart and specific ideas about what we can be doing uh as Dan says to to um, to do this work today and and I guess one way of thinking of this is if if a president were giving this speech today, what what would the twenty first century agenda for for this work look like?
1: Yeah, I love um, telling uh, the president of IRI the kinds of things that his and like minded organizations should be focused on. Um, so, but you know, I'm a think tank, so that's part of the job. Um, but look, it, part of what I will say draws a little bit on something that Dan and I wrote for Foreign Affairs some time back, and I think one of the things is to look at the priorities, and I think. Unlike in 1982, priority number one is defending our democracy and defending other democracies. If they are weakened, you can, it's going to be even harder to promote democracy abroad. And you're talking about the core of our political way of life at home. So specifically, what does that mean? Well, it means a bunch of different things like imposing costs and things. But I think it means a lot about importing these things into the relevant alliances so that if Russia moves into Crimea, you see unified action you know, not military, but you saw sanctions out of the United States and the EU when the Skirpal poisoning happened and that was seen as an international event. And so we kicked uh, diplomats out in the United States and the Germans kicked diplomats out and tried to impose costs. These political things don't do anything like that. And I think they need to. So I think we need to have coordinated collective cost imposition approaches each time one of these things happens with one of these countries. So that's one. you know, the, the other thing is, I think we've got to look around the world and focus, like, what are the fragile flowers here? Uh, you know, where is democracy taking root? But it could be a little iffy, you know, and this is where IRI does a huge amount of work. So, you know, the Ukraines and Malaysias and Ethiopias and, you know, the countries like that that are, they've recently made a turn, or they making the turn? How do we support those most effectively? Where are the, Where do we sort of You know, what are those countries that we're really going to focus on um, to make sure they don't go backwards? Because we know there are countries that would like to see them go backwards and they're providing incentives sometimes to do that. And then the third thing I guess I would just say is, um, you know, the the democracy uh, promotion organizations, IRI, NED, um, NDI, all of them, Um, most of the stuff they do, not all, but most um, is the kind of stuff that they've done for a very long time. Election observation missions, uh, you know, polling, support to parties and things like that. And if you're thinking about liberal democracy, there's a lot of focus on the democracy side of liberal democracy. And I would be really interested in seeing you know, what would it mean if we also focus or maybe even more focus on the liberal side of liberal democracy? Is it judicial training? Is it, I don't know, somehow anti-corruption activities? I mean, there's different things going on in different places, but to take a pretty expansive view of the kind of values that Reagan and others were talking about and to say, you know, ultimately, what we want is liberal democracy. There are various sort of paths along that, that way, and there's therefore various Um, things that the United States can do in different domains to support that evolution.
2: Rachel, just to pick up very quickly, um, I know you want to get through more. Um, When we think about foreign authoritarian assaults on democratic integrity abroad uh, of our friends and allies, there are a couple things that uh, are kind of catalysts for effective solutions that, that produce disproportionate returns. Uh, One is a free and open media environment so that media can report very clearly on what is happening. Part of Australia's pivot over the last year or two has come from outstanding journalism that has shown just how far the Chinese Communist Party managed to penetrate into Australian institutions, into Australian media, into Australian universities, into uh, Australian politics uh, through finance and other mechanisms. So uh, those media watchdogs are vital. Uh, Another is anti-corruption, often foreign authoritarian influence is accompanied with attempts to uh, buy off uh, uh, interested parties in a third country, right? So uh, understanding where money flows is very valuable to citizens in those countries to make sure that their leaders do not do, say, dodgy infrastructure deals with China in return for side payments. I mean, you've seen this uh, in Cambodia and Sri Lanka and other countries, Uh, Three, frankly, is a vibrant civil society uh, that can perform that watchdog function uh, of the government outside of government, uh, so that there's kind of a bottom-up check on uh, executive dealings that uh, threaten democratic integrity. Uh, And then fourth, uh, you know, a lot of very strong, much stronger parliamentary oversight. I mean, one thing we have seen with, say, Orban in Hungary or with Duterte in the Philippines just in the recent period under COVID Uh, is uh, kind of an amassing of, of executive powers in the hands of one man. And then that one leader using those extraordinary executive powers as a weapon against political opponents. And so when we think about protecting democratic integrity, how do we actually play defense? Part of this is making sure that individual leaders, even if democratically elected, do not control all the levers of power. And they have those parliamentary and media and civil society and judicial watchdogs so that power is dispersed.
0: I wanna end with uh, one more question from the audience and it's a really practical one. So hopefully it'll be be a nice place to close out the conversation. Um, They ask what you believe President Reagan would have done regarding the current situation in Hong Kong if you were president today. So obviously the US uh, cannot risk provoking a war with China, the viewer asks, Um, but is there another way to pressure, uh, pressure China to take a step back and protect Hong Kong's autonomy?
1: Well, since we're in the realm of the speculative, I think he'd probably call Margaret Thatcher and ask her what to do with her colony. Um, But if he were president today, You might also call uh, London and a few other countries, again, in a coordinated response among the democratic countries. I mean, everyone wants to avoid war or um, confrontation with China that is so severe that it really gets dangerous or fringes our interests. To that degree, there's safety in numbers, right? Right. and, you know, uh, a unilateral withdrawal of Hong Kong's special trade status by the United States is not going to mean the same thing as, as a change in the, in the trade status of Hong Kong by 20 democratic countries around the world, including the G7 economies. I'm sort of making this up. I don't know whether you could get them there, but Reagan might try to get them there. Um, You know, there's uh, some interesting ideas kicking around. And I don't know whether Reagan would do this, but he did um, push uh, an amnesty bill, which he called an amnesty bill at the time in, what, 1985? And so he was uh, open uh, more than uh, most of our political leaders today to foreigners coming to the United States and living here uh, to sort of foment a brain drain in Hong Kong, create a special category uh, immigration visa. It could be a HK1 visa. And we'll create 100,000, 200,000, whatever it is. Uh, more, I don't know. And uh, for skilled people in Hong Kong who wish to get out of what looks like a looming autocracy and move to the United States with an eventual path, um, path to citizenship, it'd be good for the United States, it'd be good for our economy. We would only create an opportunity. No one would be forced to do anything and it would create an opportunity for people who don't wanna exercise their skills and in industry in a place that's turning increasingly autocratic. So, you know, there's, there's ideas like that. I, I, just to get philosophical, philosophical for a last second, I do think, however, there's a threshold question that at least it's not clear to me on where a lot of our elected political leadership really comes down today. And that is, um, how much do we really care about other people in other countries and the way they live their lives? How much do we really care about their freedoms and their rights? I mean, of course we care abstractly, but if we're going to care, it's going to impose some costs, either costs and the activities we're doing to support them or costs when the autocrats bite back because of what we've done or costs because it shoves out something else on the agenda. There's always going to be costs. Do we care enough to bear the costs? I mean, if you take an America first uh, perspective to its logical conclusion, then let the other people live or not, I guess, as the case may be. But like, you know, we're about what happens here, unless you can make this logical link that what happens over there doesn't stay over there, which I think you can, but that's a different argument. And I think where Reagan would come down is, as he said in his speech, we do care. Why do we care? Because we're all human beings and we're united by this belief that there are universal values to which and rights to which everyone is entitled. So when those are abridged, it's an offense against all of us, not just people in Hong Kong, not just people in Russia, not just people wherever it is. It's something that should offend all of us and galvanize action where it can. And that has got to be the starting point for any of this.
2: So Rachel, I know we're out of time, you know, Boris Johnson and his announcement that Britain would open its arms to 3 million Hong Kong citizens or however many need to flee uh, in in the face of extraordinary political persecution there uh, that looks to be coming. uh, That was Reagan-esque and that was Thatcher-esque. And so I think Richard's right that we would do that. Uh, We would say China's loss is America's gain. Uh, That's one. Two... Uh, I think uh, President Reagan would think about uh, moving the US just at least a little closer to Taiwan as a successful Chinese democracy uh, that does not want to be uh, Hong Kongized or Finlandized by uh, the Chinese Communist Party and a really aggressive form of Chinese foreign policy that's in display under Xi Jinping. And so it would be an allies first approach, it would be a let's open our arms approach. And it would be, let's create more situations of strength to build deterrence, uh, because free people need to stand together, and that includes the United States and the free uh, citizens of Taiwan, as well as the citizens of Hong Kong.
0: Well, thank you both. I think that's a, a great place to end, um, looking at, at the enduring relevance of these principles for, for the world we face today. Thank you to Richard and Dan for, your, um, for the, the conversation, and thank you to you all at home for joining us today. You've been listening to CNAS Live. To receive invitations to future public events and to learn more about our experts' work, visit cnas.org slash join. You can also connect with us on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening.